0: All right. Well, we are really lucky to be joined here today by uh, by Doctor Preston Klein. Um, it's 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 a lot of fun for me to uh, to introduce uh, introduce Preston here because uh, we're we're really lucky to uh, really lucky to have him. What I'm going to do to start things off is just to give a little people a little bit of a background, a little bit of a perspective on on Preston's uh, Preston's background because. He is all over the map in terms of his career. He started off once in one spot and landed in a completely, in a much different spot. So his career path, I'm not sure it could be replicated anywhere else uh, in the uh, in the world. So he started his career in the late 1980s, leading 60-day remote wilderness trips with troubled youth, and he has visited all seven continents. Which, if you stop there, Preston, that would be a pretty impressive a pretty impressive resume. But that's not enough. At some point he uh, did a bit of a sideways turn and um, went down the education path. So he is highly educated. We've got a Bachelor of Science from Rutgers, a Masters of Education from Harvard, and a uh, Doctor in Education from the University of of Pennsylvania uh, Graduate School of Education. So uh, Preston is is highly educated and he is also the co-founder and principal at the mission critical team institute where he is the director of research so what i just provided there is the is the textbook answer to to, to preston's background so that is the and and that's a that's a pretty impressive uh, pretty impressive background um but what i'm going to describe next is i'm going to give you some real world examples of of really what what preston does and the impact that he has on 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 his uh on on his clients because um, what I would suggest you do is, is go on to Preston's webpage on the, the, mission critical team Institute and check out his, uh, check out his podcast. Okay. Cause he runs this podcast and here's just a very small sample of some of the guests that he's had on over his time on the podcast is Sean holes, director of high performance for the Cleveland Browns, um, NASA chief flight director, Holly ridings, Holly, I think was, um, the first female flight director of NASA. Pretty impressive. Um, Command Chief Master Sergeant Gregory A. Smith, the 10th Command Senior Enlisted Leader, U.S. Special Operations. And last but certainly not least, again, this is just a very small sample of Preston's guests. Is Dwayne Ross? Dwayne Ross has been involved in NASA astronaut selection since 1978, and when I was listening to the podcast, it also said that he was actually in the room yeah. when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. Which is, yeah. and now that's just a very small sample of of Preston's guests, which is absolutely incredible. Now, Preston, you got to realize when I have a guest on here, on this show, the guests are like up here. Yeah. and i'm like way down here on like <laughs> yeah. the, the the bottom rung of the ladder but when i listen to your podcast it is peer on peer yeah. you have these guests on and, and 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 the amount of respect that they have for you is is unbelievable and literally i'm going to quote directly from uh one of preston's podcasts where this was an actual quote preston went through and introduced them and this is what the guest actually said who was a a high level uh military individual he spent, he said, Preston, I spend more time learning from you than I do offering advice, almost wondering like what he was even doing on this podcast saying, how is it that, that, that you're interviewing me really, it should be the other way around. So it, it, it's a pretty impressive, uh, uh pretty impressive, um, uh, pretty impressive guest list and pretty impressive conversations going on there. Again, that's not happening on this conversation. <laughs> um, I, I'll be learning and we're all going to be learning from you, um, but uh, but again, that's a that's a pretty impressive guest list, and the and the feedback that you get on there is uh, is, is quite good. Now, where does Preston spend his time? Preston spends his time um, working on teams with the following characteristics: so teams of four to twelve people, operating in decision making environments in three hundred seconds or less, and the consequences of failure are catastrophic. So that's a very unique. Team set that uh, that Preston is um, is is uh, is working with, and what do those teams include? Those are military organizations around the globe. Those are NASA astronauts slash flight directors who are making again critical decisions at critical times. Those are first responders, being uh, police officers, firefighters, uh, paramedics, um, trauma surgeons would be another example, and and wilderness firefighting is another one that uh, Preston is uh, is really involved with. And really, if you want to break down what Preston does is um, what his goal is, is well, I'm going to describe it two ways. If you look on his website, he would say it's improving the success, survivability, and sustainability of mission critical teams. That's a textbook definition. The real definition is is that he's saving lives. That's what he's doing. Is that all of these teams are making uh, decisions where if they make the wrong one, somebody may die. And what Preston's trying to do is really, really save lives. Now. If we thought that that was all Preston did we'd be we'd be wrong because it doesn't it doesn't stop there um, Preston is also a senior fellow at the Wharton Center for Leadership and change management and what he does is he takes those learnings and applies them to the world of business because we would all like to think that in the world of business we operate in a mission critical environment the reality is we don't that's not the that's not the world that we live in. But we can certainly learn from these mission critical teams and we can certainly learn from what the high performance teams do and whether we can adopt any of those, any of those characteristics. So, like I said, Preston, we're really lucky to have you. Thank you very much for joining us. And I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know if this is a question or not I'm going to start with, but let me just start with maybe with a statement is you started as a wilderness guide. Do I, do I have that? is, Is that a typo or, or is that actually, is that actually correct?
1: No, that's that's true. And first, just thank you for having me on this, and thank you for such kind words in the introduction. That's so wonderful. I wish that was that's amazing. I go to a lot of places where I'm I'm not particularly loved because I have to tell them what they don't want to hear, and that was just lovely. Um, yeah. So I was a kid in trouble, and uh, I had a judge and a social worker, and uh, they assigned me to work with kids. And that one thing led to another, and I thought, man, I I don't know how to do a lot of things, but I know how to I know how to deal with anger. And so I ended up working for this program called project use in new jersey and spent four years leading 60 day uh, you know multiple day um up to 60 day wilderness trips with kids out of prison wow and and so where did that that, and where did
0: that take you that took you all over the world
1: uh no that took me up and down the east coast but what it led to was this question because some of those kids you know they would graduate from us and we knew there was a recidivism rape some of them go back to prison what no one told me was that some of those kids would go home and die and so from a very young age, like my early, early twenties, I became really obsessed with this question. Why do some people make it and some people don't? And I mean, a lot of us have thought about this, but I I became obsessed with this question. Well, if we were to reverse that question and ask, how do people learn to navigate uncertainty? How do we teach them how to do that better? And that's sort of what's guided me all this time. In terms of worldwide, um, as a wilderness guide, I then um, worked for other companies doing other things with all sorts of populations. From MBAs at Wharton to corporate CEOs, and those expeditions took me on all five, all seven continents. Wow! So
0: at some point, then you made the decision, like you say, the question of of who makes it and who doesn't. Like, was there a certain event that happened that, oh, yeah. that 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 got you to this point of saying, why do some people make it and some people don't? Like, why was that the question that you tended to to focus on? Was there I, I, something that happened that drove you that oh, that, sure. that
1: resulted? Yeah. The, the kids that I looked after for 60 days, you know, when you're, when you're with a kid for 60 days in the back country and you're fixing blisters and breaking up fights and making sure they brush their teeth. And then two months later, you're going to their, to their funeral, right? It, it has a massive impact on the way you yeah. see the world. And so that's when, you know, I had a lot of time sitting in the woods and I was like, I can't do anything about race or socioeconomic status or history. What, what actually, if I was going to do something about this, what would it be? And that's what I came on. i like, I could probably influence that. So, and, and then, and then what leads you to the education
0: path? So you make a decision to say, look, I want to, I want to help. I want to, I want to, I want to save lives. I want to figure out who makes it and who don't, because I want people more in the latter category of, of, or I want people in the category of, I want people to make it. Yeah. What, what got you down the path of education? Cause then you spent several years at school, right? Like yeah. going back to school and getting educated in the topic of, um, you know, of, of, of really educating people, right? Like that's
1: really what your focus is. So in my work, a lot of what I found over the years is that, and people hate to hear this, but there are circumstances which will hold you back. There's institutional systemic problems that will hold some people back while other people get ahead. But, but take that away for a second. And that's not a small thing to take away, but take that away for a second. And what we find is that a lot of people are held back, not by external things, but by the by the story they tell themselves about themselves, right? The, the lies they tell themselves about what they can't do. Yep. And what we find in experiential or outdoor education or the world I was doing is, there are moments where you can show people that they're greater than they thought they were. And as Kurt Hahn, a famous theorist once said, once you do that, they can never look back. And so yep. education was, a way to unlock I can't do anything about the world, I, I felt at the time, but I can do something about you. And, and if I can help you see that you're greater than you thought you were, then, then now all of a sudden I've armed you with some tools to go off into the world. I see. So you start with the you start with youth
0: and you, yeah. the question is how do I how do I help them turn their yeah. lives around and make them believe that they can they can make it? Then you go back to school yeah. and try and get educated on that on that topic. How does that lead you then to, to mission-critical teams and, and the founding of MCTI, the, the sure. Mission Critical Team Institute?
1: So the story is like, like you said in the beginning, you couldn't actually chart this course, right? Like my, none of my, none of my high school college advisors who also just, I go to the military just to stay out of jail would have assumed that I would end up getting a doctorate. They would all laugh hysterically at the idea that would happen. Um, so what happened was, um, we were living up in new England and I got a job in 2007 at the Wharton school at the university of Pennsylvania. It's a a business school. It's currently the number one business school in the world. They, They require me to say that thing. Um, and, um, and and what happened was my job was to lead their expeditions, to run all their expeditions worldwide. And while I was there, I was meeting all of these students, their they're MBAs, so their graduate students, they're in their 20s, sometimes in their 30s, and... You know, they're they're FBI agents and professional sports uh, you know, people and uh military combat veterans and special operations, and we all have the same sense of humor. We all sort of get what it's like to be cold, wet, tired, and hungry. And I and I become fascinated, like, how do I have so much in common with these people that had such a different life than mine? Yep. And so I started doing a series of interviews with people and realized that a lot of these teams share certain things. And one of the things they share is what's called the tacit knowledge transfer problem. So to explain that very simply, imagine that you probably know how to ride a bicycle, right? So imagine you're going to try to explain it to me. How would you do that? Like if you're listening right now, just think it through. How would you explain to Preston how to ride a bike? And what you realize quickly is God, I have no idea. I guess I would say get on and pedal, right? Because that's tacit knowledge. It's in you. You know what right looks like and feels like, but you can't necessarily explain it. We've all had this at at our work, right? Where you're an expert at something. They say, hey, you got to train this new person. And you're like, how do you not know this? Right? And it's because you took many years to learn it and make it habit. So now take that problem and think about You know, June or July of any year where resident surgeons enter the operating room for the first time and hand it a scalpel. Now you've got somebody that's done years and years and years of of academic research, and now they're about to cut into your daughter because you got to save her life. That problem becomes super acute for every human right we all have a deeply infested need for them to get that right except there's not a lot of research on how to do that well and where it's often trapped and i'll sort of pause here is it's trapped and this is what i love about my job it's trapped in the heads of like 70 year old major league batting coaches or, you know, like these folks that have done it forever, but never really talked about it. And if you can get them talking and you can help them develop a language, they have these little pieces of wisdom or insight that can be helpful to everybody. And that, so that's what we do. We go from team to team and we're trying to just mine out these, these lifelong learned lessons from amazing instructors of how to make the next generation faster, more, uh, efficient, you know, just get up that curve faster so that that girl on that surgical table has a better chance. And how do you do
0: that? Like, it, yeah. you know, I can imagine there, that's not a simple answer, but yeah. you've hit a sore spot with this with the, this bicycle example because yeah. um, I've got two kids. When I first trained the first one how to ride a bike, he crashed and burned. And that was yeah. ultimately, that was blamed on me. Yeah. Um, and and I st- that still gets brought up in the household today. And I'm not allowed to teach my second son now yeah. on how to ride a bicycle because of the experience with my first son. So so Preston, you hit a kind of a source thought with yeah. me, but needless to say, I know exactly what you're what you're referring to in terms yeah. of um, trying to explain that. But is there a silver bullet on on how to deal with the the you know that that of knowledge?
1: So there's no silver bullet, but there are some really great principles, right? And one of them is is that the first thing you need to understand when teaching tacit knowledge is your questions are more important than your answers. So let me say that again because of the way the person is learning to do the task, it is more important of how they process your questions than how they accept your answers because their answers are necessarily gonna be different than yours. So what you're not trying to do is force your solutions into them. What you're trying to do is create a series of questions that lead them to their own principles, right? And then what you wanna do really importantly is you know, in my world, I'll give you an example. In my world, if you go to surgeons or special operators and you put a heart monitor on them and you say, Hey, I want you to turn to the person next to them, next to you, and tell them for about a minute some really harsh and critical feedback. Well, neither the sender or receiver's heartbeat will change at all. They'll be like, Yep, send it. All. Let me write this down. But wow. if you turn and tell them for one minute to tell that person how special they are, how much you love them, how much you care for them, oh my gosh, near heart attack levels of stress. Meaning that a lot of high-performance teams know how to give critical feedback. They've never been trained on how to give positive or generative feedback. Which is to say, and here's the problem as a learner, if you only know what not to do, but you don't know what right feels like or looks like or sounds like, then you're ping-ponging between people's feedback. So yeah. as a great leader, you have to every once in a while anchor your people to, man, to watch something they do and they go, oh, man, stop for a second. In the future, this is what right feels like. This was amazing. Like, it, oh, you'll never fail going in this direction. If you do that, you'd be surprised how quickly people will start to develop their own ways of doing big things more efficiently.
0: So, and then how did you pick which teams to work with? Like, you built out a definition of a mission critical yep. team. You know, we were talking before that your schedule is jammed from January yep. till December. Yeah. How do you? How did you pick these? This. How did you come up with this definition of the teams and how did you pick the teams in which you choose to work with?
1: So there's, you know, in the research, if you look at the research, there's probably 50 or 60 classified teams, cross-functional teams, in-tech teams, heterogeneous teams, homogeneous teams. So a lot of research out there and I really wanted to be specific in my dissertation and the teams I were working with, I was just. I was spending a lot of time just asking, what do they share? And and what they found out they shared is, and here's a couple of things just to think about for everybody listening when you're thinking about your team. So some things everybody should just consider. One, why a team? Why not individuals? It turns out that some problem sets, and we can talk about Knefin model or Heifetz model or any model of problem set. So think about technical, complicated, complex, chaotic, that kind of spectrum. Well, the more towards chaotic that you go, it turns out the research shows the more in need of a team. The individual is just going to be less and less successful as you increase complexity, Urgency and consequence. And those are the three things we think about complexity, urgency, and consequence. So, how fast does this thing have to happen? How complex is it? And what happens if we blow it? Right? I see. And so in my teams, we picked uh, four to 12, because that's small group dynamics. And we picked 300 seconds because neurologically, and I'm also a visiting scholar at the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative. We do a lot of work looking at the applied side of neuroscience, specifically around learning and immersion events, what we call immersion events, these things we're talking about. The reason why I chose 300 seconds is because that's how much oxygen you have in your brain right now. So if I'm doing a trauma resuscitation, if I'm running into a burning building to get someone, if I'm doing a hostage rescue, that's how much time I need just to get you air back in your lungs or blood back in your brain. And if I go too long, now I have a different problem. And so most of the teams operate in that bubble, right? And because they're working in a team environment and under such criticality and urgency... And they're going to share the success, and they're going to share the blame. So a lot of human factors and human domain come into that. And so that's for me um, the laboratory we sort of work with. Those are the teams, and we can we can share learnings, like I said, across all the teams you described. And so it's one for one. Every one of the teams can learn from the other teams in these regards in learning.
0: Hey, just another question on that, Preston: Is that when you get a call, yeah, and you show up on site, yeah, and they roll you out there? Yeah. And you roll in there with, you know, again, I'm gonna say with your clipboard, just to yeah. just to kind yeah. of put paint oh, picture. Right. And they say, like, who's this guy? And
1: yeah, like like how does
0: how how does that play out? I'm just interested to know because you've told some interesting stories about oh, yeah. where it's like oil and water, right? Oh, they yeah. don't like I I'm guessing the person who called you to come is probably different than the person who's actually on site in the in the team environment. Like how does that how do, you such, deal with, how do you deal with that situation, right? And, and, and yeah. trying to tell them, hey, like, like, I can help you. You know what I mean? Like, like, just have an open mind.
1: It's such an important question. And, and leaders out there, I would, I would really think about this carefully. So what happens now is I actually won't work with a team where the CEO calls me. And this is the irony. And so, or if the CEO calls me, what I have to do is say to them, okay, but I have to actually go talk to what we call the instructor cadre, the people training. I have to go see whether or not we can have a conversation. Because if we can't, it's a waste of money and time for everyone, right? Yeah. But, but to be honest with you, Scott, most of the teams that call me, it's the cadre themselves. So it's the bottom line that are stuck. They've heard about me. Another team has said, Cole Preston, he helped us with this. And then I go in, and I don't go in necessarily as a consultant, which I say, oh, try these four things, or these are my five principles of leadership we do what's called collaborative inquiry and this is this the kind of of work research i do was created by the maori in new zealand to have white people study maori culture because often i'm an outsider studying an insider culture and so yep. what we do is collaborative inquiry i come in and i don't say you're right or wrong i literally say well tell me what you're looking at okay Show me, explain it to me using your language, and then show me what you've written. And then I'll say something like, okay, just to be clear, what's happening right now isn't the same as what you've written. And then a huge argument breaks out. (laughs) And then we work through the argument, and then I reflect back what they're saying, and I show them what some other teams are thinking, and then we come to a shared kind of uh, of a, a way forward. And are they open to your feedback like they're are are, are they quick to make change like if they see a better
0: a better way to go forward is that they'll say yep we're changing it tomorrow type of thing or or does it is 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 the process kind of a lot more like it takes a lot longer than that.
1: So it's really interesting question like these are great questions so the it has to do with how close they are to the problem set so if they're in combat right now they're in surgery right now they are receptive to change anything however. If they're in a pause and they're deeply defensive about their legacy, they think that people are gonna change them or who they are and they're in defensive posture, nothing's changing. Doesn't matter. They can I've had situations where they agree with me. They're like, Yep, that's the right answer. Yep, we're gonna do that, but we're not gonna. Right? Wow. Because they're they're like, but that would you know, the alumnus, the the people who think about our brand, our badge, our our whatever it is, our patch. Um, they wouldn't tolerate it, so we can't do it, even though it's the right answer. Wow. So it just depends. Your answer depends.
0: So what I'm gonna what I thought would be helpful next is to go through some criteria or some characteristics or or some problem areas, let's say, of, of mission critical teams. Yeah. And 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 Preston, I'd love to get your perspective on these issues, and and then the the this, the follow on question would be, how does it apply in the, in, in the business world? Yep. The first thing is team selection. Yeah. How are how are mission critical teams selected? Like what are the key characteristics? Now, I guess one question would be is there a common thread that goes across all mission critical teams in terms of picking an individual? Do they have a certain set of, of, of characteristics that apply across everybody or does it, or is a firefighter different than a police officer who's different than a, obviously your education is going to be different. I, I, I like your, yep. but, but this goes beyond education. This is other stuff, but I just love to get your perspective on how are the teams initially selected yep. for like mission critical, but how are mission critical teams initially selected? And is there a common thread that goes across, you know, some of these, some of these teams?
1: Oh, 100%. And and just to be really clear, and this is where there is a separation between our teams and a corporate environment. So HR in your organization is, when they're hiring somebody, they're selecting somebody to do a job, right? That's not a bad thing. That's what they do. That's not true in mission critical teams. We're selecting somebody to join a community, and as part of that community, they'll be doing a job. And let me explain how that actually works out. So you have candidate A, candidate B. Candidate A shoots, moves, and communicates 100% score. But he's kind of a jerk, or she's kind of a jerk, and we don't really trust her. Candidate B, 85% person, we call them scrappy. They they learn as they go. They're a little fumbly, but everybody loves, adores them, and would spend time with them and trust them with their life. All of my team selects B 100% of the time. Wow, yeah. And it's because we can teach the other stuff. We can't teach me not trusting you as i'm going into a burning building i can't fix that but i can fix your skills i can fix your feet ankles hands elbows i can fix your fingers and eyes i can fix what you're looking at and why you're looking at it i can fix all that but i can't fix trusting you and so for us that's that is above all that matters that we will trade that against everything against that um and, and, t- and just to go back a second, and just, you know, you asked earlier with the comparison between my teams and, and tech team and uh, corporate teams. And I would say, right now, really in history, there's some really interesting inflection points that are happening where I think what I'm about to say will resonate with your audience, regardless of the problem set or mission they're focused on. And so when we look at an op- what we call an operator, where a candidate becomes an operator in our world. Um, we're looking at a couple of things. So I walk in, and the first question I'm always gonna ask is what's the problem set they're looking at? And why does this matter? And it matters because we separate, based on Snowden's model, the Kneffen model, we separate the world into ordered problems and unordered problems. And and all I mean I'm oversimplifying a lot, and Dr. Snowden is probably rolling his eyes if he's listening to this, but um, um is that Ordered problems allow you to build contingency plans, to prepare, to anticipate the future, future, to do pattern recognition, all these things. So think about Olympic sports. Think about professional sports. Think about these things where we actually can do game film, think, okay, here's what we're going to do if they do this. That's an ordered problem. An unordered problem is zombie apocalypse, right? The aliens are landing Thursday, 9-11. These are unordered problems, right? These are problems that we don't how to anticipate. So why does this matter? Because I need to know that because am I building an intact team that can finish each other's sentences against an ordered problem and, and, and build contingencies? Or am I building a team where I need to build the capacity of the team to solve whatever shows up? So, contingency versus capacity. And that relates to cognitive diversity. So, the next thing is the next problem that we're going to look at is if, once we've identified the problem set, what problem set are you looking at? Then we look at the human factor, right? And so, what kind of human are we talking about? And I'll get back, I'm going to circle back to this because this is where we start and end. But really, why do we care about the human factor? Because of the team dynamics. And so, we're looking at it's an individual, it's a team, not an individual. It's a team, not a group. Just because you're all sitting together in a room doesn't make you a team. Team requires interdependency, Heifetz and others have commented on this. And then lastly, I wanna know if it's unordered or ordered because I need to know how much cognitive diversity is in the room. Why does this matter? Because the profile of building a homogeneous team, the all-female Guatemalan banjo players, right? They can finish each other's sentence, they grow up together, they know the same language, but they're all going to come up with the same solution. They have the same set of tools. Whereas if I put together the UN team from Nigeria and Asia and, and Europe and the United States and Canada, well, they're going to have a lot more solutions, but it's going to take longer to build them because Scott, you're going to make a joke from where you, and I won't get it right, and the Nigerians yeah. going to look at me, or you know, the Europeans going to get close, too close to me, and we have to work through. So it's messy in the beginning, but if you can wait it out and build them with a mission focus, you end up with a with a more with a team with a greater potential to solve unordered problem. And then what becomes the two last ones that become super interesting is. The rate of technological change directly where it impacts us directly in in, impacts the human factor in the sense that what is their rate of learning and so i need a team member that can learn at a certain rate or they're no good to me because if i'm giving them a selection problem and, and could we get them through if we gave them more time? Of course we could. We could. We have experts. We can work with them. But part of the implicit understanding is the reason we need you to solve this problem fast in training is because once you hit the world, the problems will be coming at you that fast. And so if we haven't identified your rate of learning, if we haven't looked at that, your neuroplasticity, your adaptability, you could be amazing. Like I said, shoot, move, communicate, and you and the team might love you, but they're going to not love you later when you're not adapting to the problem set. And then the last one which is an existential threat facing every single human right now, is your information discipline. So what's happening is, you know, there's 24 hours in the day that hasn't changed. But if you look at the amount of data that you're getting in your life, Scott, 10 years ago to now, it's increased exponentially. And so what people are doing, because you're hiring people for great work ethic, right? So what they're doing is, oh, I got to get these emails done. I got to get these projects done. But you're layering on more and more and more until you've we've we've passed the point where they're actually going to be able to pull it off. So what they're doing is they're compromising, but you haven't given them rules on how to compromise. So here they're making those decisions depending on who it is. Maybe they're giving up lunch. Maybe they're coming in early, which means they're spending less time with their family. Maybe they're not stretching or working out, which means they're reducing their, their brain capacity and their health. And then finally, they're going to start ignoring their team and their family, which means that the protective factors that make them great, they're going to start to crumble. And by the time they look up and say, oh, I need help, they've really burnt through all their protective factors. And in my world, help means if you don't help me, I'm going to die from suicide. So we have to deal with this information problem. It's, it is, I would argue, one of the biggest threats facing modern teams because it's frogs in hot water. We don't see it. And, and we all think, oh, yeah, uh, uh, it, I, it's a problem. But if I can just get through this, it'll be fine later. It's a lie we all tell each other. So it's a long-winded way of sort of answering your question.
0: Now, I've, I've heard you say before that <clears throat> one of the most important things an individual should have is self-awareness. And maybe if you could just talk about why being self-aware is so important and why that's an important characteristic. Like what, like the emotional intelligence, right? Like yeah. being, being self-aware, why is that such a critical component of, of mission-critical teams?
1: Um, because um, I have a friend named Harry Moffat, And um, Harry, um, when I go to Australia with him, everything in Australia will kill you, right? So Harry has this expression that says, with me. And if he says, <laughs> with me... It means that I need to get over his right shoulder behind him, right, <laughs> At within arm's distance so he can grab me. Now, he is a famous SAS operator. He is the author of 11 Bats. He's this amazing guy. But what emotional intelligence understands that if he says that fast and loud to me, he's not barking, he's not yelling at me, he's trying to protect me. So I need to ignore the tone, volume, and tempo and listen to the actual data that he's communicating. What he's communicating is, I need to protect you, it has to happen right now, I'm not interested in your feelings right now, so I need you to put those away. Right. I see. There are other times, however, where we walk into a situation where somebody's having a bad day and our bad days are different than other people's bad days. At that point, he might turn to me and go, Yeah, we're going to need to lean into this. And what that, that's a package of saying a whole bunch of things. And I need to be self aware enough to know this is not, this next period of time is not about me. Right, I need to take my ego. I need to. That's not about me. And if I'm not self-aware to know these things, then I'm reacting to to unintended transmissions, right? Rather than reacting to the data that's trying to be communicated to me. And that's why in our world it's so critical. Can you train that? Yeah, yeah. Like that oh, sounds 100%.
0: like 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 someone like the person you just described. Part of this is is probably. They were born with it, and they grew up. They had parents, and they grew up in an environment where that skill set was probably learned very early on in their life. Again, I'm just I'm just guessing, and then maybe it gets refined, right? Um, and I'm just wondering, from your perspective, that skill set can you actually train it, or or is it kind of you either have it or you don't? You know what I mean? Like you're,
1: you're it's one or the other. So if you think about the bell curve that is a human population, right? Let's take away the narcissistic sociopaths as an outlier because there's very few of them. And the answer is for everybody else with a certain level of IQ, um, right? the answer is yes. And I'll give you an example of what what I mean. So this year, we published in the Journal of Orthopedic Surgery on routine versus critical communication. And, and the exercise that we do, this was invented, uh, created to work with nurses, because there was a high attrition in nursing. And one of the reasons was, is because there was an understanding that doctors are jerks, right? Um, and everybody kind of nodded, right? Yeah, okay. And here's what we did real quick, and and everyone at home, play along, and I'm going to give you just two, three quick scenarios, right? First scenario is you're going into your boss, you want to get some advice on your career, right? And your boss says to you, hey, can you send me your five principles of routine communication? And you'll probably say things like courtesy, respect, active listening, that sort of thing. And then I give you the next scenario, and I say, okay, imagine you're going to work, and you come across a car accident, and there's... a bunch of kids trapped in a burning vehicle. You've got 300 seconds to get them out of that vehicle, but you've only got untrained civilians to help you. And what are your principles, five principles, are critical communication? And you're going to come up with direct, brevity, clear, concise. You're going to be projecting your voice. You're going to be flat-toned, unemotional. Now imagine, last one, imagine you're in the supermarket and someone starts talking to you like that um, critical communication where you're going to label them as a jerk, psychotic, drunk, angry. Because people don't, the context doesn't lend itself to understand that it's not a critical environment. So what leaders need to understand is, do your team members know when you've left a routine environment and entered a critical environment? Because your situational awareness, right, what you see as a threat, Scott, for doing all the things you've done for so many years, the younger person doesn't have enough laps to know what you're looking at. So you suddenly start barking directions. They're like, man, Scott's in a bad mood. They don't understand. No, the building's on fire right yeah. so we do these trainings with folks um and it's it takes 20 minutes scott and we do these trainings and we have nurses literally say out loud oh he wasn't a jerk he just needed the other tool he was speaking loudly because he didn't think i heard him i was like right and it's the, so to your point there are actually pretty simple things we can do to develop the next generation they just don't know what they don't know we forget that everyone taught us what a hard day's work is we didn't we weren't born with that Someone taught us. We just yeah. need to teach them. So now you're getting into training.
0: Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about about the the the, the characteristics that are needed to succeed in a mission critical team. Yeah. Um, identifying, you know, the 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 pros and cons, and I'm just wondering the training that is going to be required is going to be quite different than corporate training, corporate oh, yeah. training. You go to a course for, you know, one or two weeks at the beginning and, and then off you go. Whereas in the mission critical team environment, you might be training for years. I've had, you know, we, we had a, a Navy SEAL on at one point. He told me yeah. we spend 90% of our time training 10% yeah. of our time in the field, That's right. which again is, is that is polar opposite to life in the corporate world. So maybe just talk on the mission critical team side is, what is what is the focus on training and what are they trying to get? What What's the objective of that training at the end of the day? What do they want is the finished product and how do they weed out candidates that don't hit the don't hit the uh, don't hit the mark? Like what what is the I guess just to start? What is that approach for training? How do they how do they go at the training aspect of things?
1: So, uh, you're asking a really complicated, co- complex question. So I want to just pull it apart. I want to decouple some things. Yep. So one, I would, I would encourage everyone. Um, there's a woman named Sue Phillips, who's a noted theologian, and she's doing a lot of work in the corporate space and what they're, and, and specifically looking at attrition. Why do some people stay in corporations? Yep. Some people leave. We all want to know that. And what she would, what she would explain to you based on her research is that a human being separate from their job have sort of four basic needs. Connection, belonging, purpose and learning. And so if a person feels connected, and they feel belonging, like, oh, man, my my life mission and their life mission, and there's a parallel path, right? Um, if there's a purpose, we're actually trying to do something of value here. And I'm learning every day, you, you tend to keep that person. And you didn't um, mention money.
0: Preston, you didn't yeah. mention money. No. Like
1: that's not part of the equ- that is no, obviously part not. of the
0: equation but it's not a critical part of the equation.
1: It's actually not strangely enough. The research yeah. shows that over and over again. Now don't get me wrong, this shouldn't be an excuse to underpay people and we yeah. do know that there are minimum criteria for people to be happy but it's not a lot. It's yeah. not a huge amount of money but it's probably more than you want want to sometimes give away, right? Um but but I don't mean to minimize people will leave because of money. I will leave because of money. If if you're paying me $1 and he's going to pay me $5 and say Work, I'm taking five dollars. Um, so that's that's real. Um, and then the other thing I want to sort of tell you or sort of explain is that I want you to sort of think about not just training, but training, education and experience. It's sort of a tripod. So we think about training for certainty. So we train skills. Education is for uncertainty. So we educate for principles. Um, what would you do if it depends? And then experience is the lapse you need to do to actually say, how would this actually work in my hands and feet and mouth, right? Like how do these things actually work? And so when that Navy SEAL says we spend 90% of their time in training, It's a, I would say they spend their 90% of their time going around the lap of training, education and experience. And so they don't think about it just as rote memorization. It's very complex. It's very integrated. And so we are training because we don't have time. So that urgency requires that we have as many tools in the toolkit, as many habits in place prior to when the explosion happens, then because you, you don't have time to kind of go, oh, I wonder if I should take path A or B. You're already through the door, right? Yeah. So it, it has to be automated wherever you're possible. So that's that's the sort of short answer to that question. And and I've heard you talk about this before too, is is training
0: for high stress environments, yeah. right? Because if you were to toss me into a high-stress environment like what's in a mission-critical team, I would fail. I am not – without adequate training and things like that. And and my – if you were to look at my upbringing and everything like that, I am not I, – I I would fail in that environment. So the question I'd have for you is, is it succeeding at that moment in time where, like you say, the bomb hits or or, or whatever hits and you have to – it is go time – Yep. Is that some, and the, and the stress and, and, you know, you're in fight or flight mode, right? Like it is yep. like, again, there's, 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 there's chemical issues going on in your brain too, which yep. are, which are probably going to work against you unless you're, unless you're properly trained. Can you train for that moment? Right. Like, can oh, yeah. you put people in high stress environments to say, look, you can take somebody like me who right now would fail in that environment, full stop. And put me through a proper training to say, you might succeed. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. is, is that a trainable skill?
1: Yeah, actually, military boot camps have been doing it for centuries. And so it's absolutely trainable. It's it's super easy to do. And the one thing I would also point out, Scott, is that you say that, and I understand why you say that. And I and I understand that probably just being around that team, being in that context, it's all overwhelming. But let me pivot and, and give you another perspective. You mentioned that you have children, right? So let's say your child was in danger. You wouldn't fail. Yeah. Right, and it has a lot to do with: Are you focused? What are you in service to? We would say: What are you in service to? Are you in service to your fear, your shame, your embarrassment, your insecurity? Are you in service to someone else? Are you in service to something greater? And if you, if Scott, I, I promise you that if if your child was in danger, none of those doubts would happen. Right? You'd just walk through the pails of bullets and you'd come grab them and you'd move on. Right? Yeah. Because that's what needed to happen. And 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 it's a lot about getting people bought into the understand that what we're doing has to happen.
0: Well, and it, 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 what we talked about earlier before we got on is the reality is who you consult with are not for profits. So yeah. most of the people that you work with, if they were in a for-profit world, they would probably be making triple quadruple. Oh yeah. What, what, the, what they're, what they're, and yeah. that's always struck me as saying these people are doing these high stress high, you know, high impact jobs where lives are at stake, they're getting underpaid yeah. compared to what they're doing. Why do they do it? And I think the, the answer is you correct me if I'm wrong here is that they are, they have been, they, they probably have a, uh, an attachment to that type of field, but I guessing the training also would train them to believe in something that was bigger than them. And, and bigger than money and bigger than a lot of, you know, what a lot of other people would strive for in terms of money, you know, and, and, and getting some, you know, super high, pro- they, they just believe in something else, you know, they believe yeah. in the in the almost the greater good. And that's what gets them through in those times. And if you don't have that, you won't, it it w- won't work. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you won't, you, you, you can't, you can't get them. Am I on the right track pressing
1: or not? Yeah. I just, one correction though, it, it, it's that we don't train them for that. They show up like that. Yeah. And so, what I mean is, if you're going in to be a nurse or a teacher or a firefighter, you're not doing it because of the money. You're doing it because society needs that role filled and you think that you can be of, contr- of service to the greater good. And we sometimes forget that in America, we think, oh man, if you, you know, you made your choices and, and you have to suck it up. And I was like, hold on, if you're in trouble, you need that paramedic. You need that nurse. You need that. You know what I mean? Like we need teachers to teach science to our younger generation so that the country continues. These, these, aren't, these aren't things that we can sort of just give up on. Agreed. Yeah, I, I no,
0: And, and, and I, I agree with that. And I guess the training at that point is just refining those skills, right? It's yeah. just, is just building that out and, 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 and giving more and more to it. But um, yeah. no, I, I would agree. I, I want to talk a little bit about more about this delivery and crunch time, because mm-hmm. I, I think it's a fascinating, a fascinating topic is that you know, there. Although the stress levels at mission critical teams are are high, the stress in the business world can be high as oh, well. Not oh, as absolutely. high as mission critical teams, but if you had a business that was on the verge of bankruptcy, oh or or you know, or a big customer that was again, it, we're comparing apples and oranges to some degree. But stress, to some degree, is relative as well. You know what is. some people believes is stress is is different than another person. You know what I mean? And if you were to break it down, is there a set of key success factors that would say, "Look, across both a mission critical team and a business team, here are those key success factors that are going to make sure that you can deliver in crunch time that you can respond to the you can respond to the stress. Is there anything that jumps out on on that front, Preston?"
1: Yeah, yeah, a couple of things. And one, I, I do want to echo this sentiment. If you're running a company and you have 100 employees and the company map got a business, that's 100 people and their families' lives that are on your shoulders. We can't diminish the size of that stress. That's just massive. And so I want to just tell you a story that gets at what you're saying. So there was a professional sports team in the U.S. And they were an NFL team. They were going for the Super Bowl. They made a commitment that, that this was the year they were going to go for the Super Bowl. To do that, you need everybody on board. You have Everyone has to believe. They have to drink the I believe Kool-Aid. And one of the problems is they had not problems, but they pointed out and identified that the receptionist seemed like uh, indifferent. And, and why does what do we care? What's the receptionist? Who cares? Turns out that in many corporations and in businesses and sports teams, the receptionist, they've done research on this has an oversized impact on the culture of the community because of how they greet every single human coming and going. And so they said, well, maybe we should replace her. And the general manager says, whoa, 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 whoa well, let, let me just go chat with her. Like, we, we, you know, like maybe we just don't know what we don't know. So they walked down to this. And you can just imagine the CEO coming to talk to the receptionist, right? Like the level of intimidation. She's literally shaking, the poor woman. And, and he goes, whoa, 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 we're all good. You're not in trouble. I just want to have a conversation with you. And she's like, okay. And, um. He serves her tea, he tries to get her calm down, and he goes, look, we just had a meeting, and we're all trying to win the Super Bowl. And she's leaning forward like, yep, great. <laughs> like, well, nothing to do with me, but sure. And they're like, well, we just don't think, you know, you're necessarily bought into it. And she goes, she just looks at him, like, so confused, and she says, she says, sir... I have two children in high school. I'm a single mom and I'm just trying to keep them alive in a tough part of Philly, a tough part of a, of the United States. Right. And, and I just need to get them through college and I just need them alive. And I need this job. And he was like, Oh, and he goes, he leans in. He goes, well, if I give you a two-year contract and a 10% raise, will you help us get to the Super Bowl? She goes, you do that, I'll get you to the Super Bowl, right? Like, <laughs> like, tell me who to kill. And so once, once we kind of identified that her value system, her needs, her why, once we align that with the teams, it, everything else fell into place. Too often in these things, we assume that everyone cares about what you care about. And if you as a leader aren't sort of telling your team and says, look, Here's here's the impossible, big, hairy, audacious goal we're going to go for. What's the thing in your life right now that's going to going to inhibit your ability to buy into that? And let's talk about, I might be not be able to fix it. I might not be able to influence it. But, it, but if it's daycare for your kids, man, we could probably solve that problem. Do you know what I mean? Like there are yeah. things that a leader, if you just ask, right, some you can't fix, but some, oh, my gosh, these are low-hanging fruit.
0: Well, and it goes back to what we talked about earlier is self-awareness, right? Yeah. Is is having that level of self-awareness and emotional intelligence to, to know to go talk to the receptionist, approach her in a, in a way that, you know, would op- would allow her to open up, recognizing yeah. the fact that you're the CEO talking to the receptionist yeah. and, and making that whole and, – and, and then entrusting her with, you know, a, a safe – zone for her to then share something that was quite personal to her. Right. Like, like I'm sure she's not sharing it to everybody who walks through that door. She's only going to share that with somebody who she would trust. Right. And you know, the value of emotional intelligence is that without that,
1: that's not happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's too many leaders that are like, okay, team with me, and then runs out the door alone, right? Because no one's going with them. And if you don't build that camaraderie, if you don't build that sense of shared mission, um, and, and in some cases, depending on how you organize it, you're going to have to ask some hard questions about how you're financially incentivizing your team. If you're incentivizing them to compete with one another, you're going to get that. Like you get what you incentivize for. I went to a famous um, one of the CEOs of one of the huge insurance companies, I forget which one it was, but a massive one. And, um, we asked them how they did in the financial crisis. And they said, we didn't do too bad. And the reason is we're very careful about what we incentivize our salespeople to do. Meaning, if we incentivize them to sell insurance, they will.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: and then uh, sometimes to our detriment. So we are really thoughtful about. We, we want, we have performance criteria, but it's not always associated with sales. We want quality, not quantity. That's how we survive 150 years. I see. The The next
0: piece that I wanted to talk to you about is the importance of culture. Is yeah. if there's a common thread again, between a mission critical team and the business team, um, culture is important i think very very important if not most important to the success of both of those both yeah. of those groups and maybe just talk about what you think culture is like like how would you define it mm-hmm. um, and why is it so important <clears throat> you, you so, know what, why why is why is culture so important to both an mct a mission critical team and and one in the business world
1: so i'm going to i'm going to replace culture with the word narrative and i'll, and I'll explain why Because culture is, how does culture manifest? Culture manifests in people's behaviors every day. Do you lie, cheat and steal the way I lie, cheat and steal? Or if you don't, then we have a problem. But also what's the story you're telling at the pub or the breakfast table about your team and your corporation? Is it a story of greatness or is it a story of tragedy and deceit and dysfunction? Um, And that narrative, right? And your behaviors is what culture is. So this is becoming actually really, 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 it's always been important, but it's it's changing now because the nature of teams are changing. Meaning that 20 years ago, if we put you on a team, it was probably an intact team. You're gonna to work together for a long period of time. You're gonna to get to know each other. You might know each other's families, that sort of thing. Today's world with remote working, cognitive diversity, um, the nature of specialization of skills, it's more likely you're going to be on tactical swarms or what we call cross-functional teams, um, where you're working with a variety of teams throughout the day where you may or may not know people. So why does this matter? It matters because how do you build trust and cohesion in a group you're rarely with? Um, and how, what are you doing to do that? And it turns out from the research from Adam Grant and Malcolm Gladwell and, oh uh, gosh, uh, you know, Culture Code, Dan Coyle, um, all these other people that, there, there actually are some things, I really encourage everybody to read Culture Code and Talent Code, because in a corporate environment, that's kind of the best practices for how to rapidly build trust and cohesion and lasting trust and cohesion in teams that may or may not see each other a lot. But what I said in the very beginning, right, what, what Sue Phillips talks about, this idea of connection, belonging, purpose, and learning, as a leader, you need to be thinking in those terms. If you're yeah. not, it, you know, because if you're not intentional about your culture, somebody else is. Let me say that. If you're not intentional about your story, then somebody else is telling your story and you don't get a vote. These are things that matter in the modern age. And those four things you talked about at the beginning,
0: male, female, you, you know, whatever, those are those are, those are are uh, needs of human beings. That's right. right. Like it doesn't matter it doesn't who matter. you are. Yeah. You might be a little different, maybe need less or more of certain of those items. But at the yeah. end of the day, those are just as important to some degree as, you know, food and air, right? Like, like if you want to be happy, if that's what, uh, you know, happy in your job, (laughs) which, which would probably keep you there. Like those things are critical, right? Like you just can't, you know, those are, those are just super important. Um, The other thing, the other thing that I want to ask you a little bit about, you you know, um, is again, you go back to these high stress environments and, and how do people survive? And I, I remember in one of the James Bond films, right? James Bond is always in high stress environments. You know, he's he's captured and he's about to be killed, blah blah blah. And they asked him, I said, James, how do you how do you operate in those environments? And he said, he is, is it simple? He goes, a positive mental attitude. He goes, No yeah. matter what happens, a positive mental attitude. And I think the words I heard you say at one point was a solution focused mindset. Yeah. So I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about in those high stress environments, how people are are able to kind of keep keep their mind focused. Like it's very easy to get negative. I think we've all been environments where, you know, something goes wrong and we're going to turn negative, but it sounds like in these mission critical teams, there's nobody, you know, bitching and complaining. It is like, we need to figure this out ASAP. And I'm just wondering how, again, how do you train that? And, And again, maybe just talk a little bit about what is a solution focused mindset and why that's
1: so important. Sure. And, you know, I'll tell you a funny little anecdote from my world. So you mentioned James Bond. Do you know that James Bond, Jason Bourne, and Jack Bauer all have the same initials, JB? I didn't and so, know that. Yeah. <laughs> and so in my world, we refer to certain people as JBs, right? I so I work Is that, with Do JB. you
0: know if that was intentional? I'm sure came it was. You, yeah, I'm yeah. sure <laughs> it was.
1: I'm sure it was. And so we refer to a lot of people as JBs. And I so see. if you think about JBs, and to your point, what are we looking for? Well, when we first started, we looked for people who could figure it out, and that's become what we call weaponized curiosity. And so we are looking for people who can weaponize their curiosity, meaning that there are people that are constantly in search of a way forward. They're relentlessly like, I can solve this problem. Just let me out. I can solve this problem. And... When you put those people together, right, amazing, amazing things can happen, but you've got to foster it. And so you've got to be in a team and room, and we'll talk about after action reviews, but you've got to be in a culture where you're constantly asking the youngest member of your team first before anyone else talks. Hey, let's start with Susie and Johnny. Guys, what are your thoughts right now? And they don't have to be right. This is an exercise. You're being developed, right? And what I tell my staff is my job is to develop you. You will not work for me forever. My job is to develop you right now. I need in return for that to do the you best you can for me. But my job is to develop you. And sometimes that's going to mean i got to tell you some things you don't want to hear. But it's in yep. service to you. Like, I'm not going to take out my aggressions on you. But if you blow it, we're going to have a conversation about it. I'm not going to make you feel small. But we're yep. going to have some honest conversations about what habits you have, behaviors. And, like. and one of the things I, I, I'm, I mourn for is how some corporate organizations have stopped doing that. They've stopped having a role for elders or what we call eldership because of, oh, all sorts of protections and everything. And I think you do a disservice to your country, your company and your country, actually, if you're not able to have those developmental, those meaningful developmental conversations. The other thing I wanted to say um, is, as you mentioned about bitching and complaining, here's the irony. So in firefighters, nurses, special operations people, there's actually a whole culture and code and rules for bitching and complaining. It's actually, in other words, it's done all the time, but it's done within a certain set of rules. And so you you get to whine and complain about certain things and it should be funny because every one of these is a pursuit of humor. And so it should always be something like, oh good, it's raining, I hope that would happen. It's like that kind of a thing because it's intended to make the people around you laugh. If you're just whining and feeling sorry for yourself, oh man, that's the, the relentless abuse you'll get is is endless. Um and so um so you, you said positive mental outlook. So let's just talk about gratitude for a second. There's a lot of research out there about gratitude, and it's also that we are in my world, you you can't be the person So what I tell my staff, this is the easiest way to explain it. If I say to my staff, hey, folks, I I need to get a, a, a NASA shuttle. Your job isn't to tell me that's impossible. Your job is, Roger, boss, it's going to cost about $4 billion. And I'll say, oh, I don't have $4 billion. We'll need another plan. Right? Your job is to say yes, and here's what it'll cost. That's your job. And then I'll determine whether or not we can, we can pay that time, money, political, whatever it is, right? That whatever that currency is, I'll determine whether or not it's worth the squeeze. Yeah. Your job is to actually think outside the box and say, if I had to get a shuttle, how would I go about doing it? Actually do the, like actually engage. And what's interesting about these teams is, you know, you think I'm joking, but you could go to any of these teams and say, guys, I, I need a shuttle. And they would actually get together and start like, how would we, and they'd be dead serious. Like, If we need to show how would we go about doing as a thought exercise, they're constantly doing that. They're constantly like, what's the impossible thing? All right. Now, as a thought exercise, how would we go about what's the first step to move forward that goal? That's that's weaponized curiosity. It's it's relentless. Wow. Yeah, that
0: that 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 mindset is just like you say, you go back to James Bond dealing with the impossible. There is nothing that's impossible. Right. Is that they can they can figure it out no matter what the uh, what the issue is. So we're going to get into now after action reviews, but the way I want to lead in there is maybe just talking a little bit about a commonality between the teams, right? You've got all these different teams that are doing all these different things. The education requirements to do a paramedic versus a firefighter, completely different, but dealing with stress and things like that, there's clearly a similarity there. I'm just wondering, is there commonalities amongst the teams and i think you're going to lead to getting into discussion about an after action review and, and being one of the commonalities yeah. between those between those teams but maybe just talk a little bit about are there similarities between all of these teams you work
1: with there are and, and they're and they're are absolutely massive similarities they're all um above average iq they all roughly have the same sense of humor they're all relentlessly pursuing excellence um and Uh, to your point, what we've known for after 20 years of doing this work, every great team, a team you'd point to and say, man, it's a really great team, does great after action reviews. And every bad team, once you'd be like, that's a train wreck, either does them poorly or doesn't do them at all. That's the one thing I can absolutely point at and say, And, and when I say after action reviews, let me be really clear what I mean by that. What I mean by that, without getting in the terminology is that a group, a team, a specific pick any team, Takes time to make meaning of an event they just went through, make shared meaning so they're all understand what happened, what they thought was going to happen, what actually happened, and what they need to know moving forward. And so that's what I mean by act action views. It's a shared meaning making process. And so it might be a debrief or a hot wash in medicine, it's, it's MM or mortality and morbidity meetings, um, and, or morbidity and mortality. I forget, I get them confused, but. Um, every team has some version of this um i know your corporation does them and so um, i think it's just a critical thing but let me let me sort of help because i think this is where you're going with some things that you need to be thinking about when you do that and i'm going to start we just released an article in the harvard business review on after action reviews it's open source you can you can go and take a look at it and and here's the bottom line just just you know take a look at it but here's the bottom line when you're making meaning so you just went through an event you've acquired a company or your one of your companies has had an incident and and there's been some some damage done in in terms of oh reputation or personnel or whatever it is or product or whatever it is and you say I mean let's talk about that what actually matters at the end of the day isn't what you as the leader think happened and what you think should come out of this what matters is what story are your team members telling monday morning about you and the team and the organization. Is it, I suck, we suck, you suck? Or is it, man, we just overcame a really hard time, we did it together, and now we know some things we're gonna have to fix moving forward. That's a very different story that's being told, and you as a leader can influence that story. And now, if you'd like, I I can get into sort of the nuts and bolts about how to do that, if that's a good segue.
0: Well, you know what, before we go there, Preston, maybe, I know you're a history buff. Um, Maybe just give us some perspective on, Where after action reviews started and the history of an after action review, like, is this a, is this a recent phenomenon is this is, or, or does this go back years and years and years? And maybe just talk a little bit about where it started, like in what, or like, uh, you know, in what type of organization did an after action review
1: actually start it? Oh, yeah. I mean, these have been done informally for many years, but it came out of the military during combat and the combat operations. What they were finding was they had a wide variation of what was working and what was not. And what they wanted to do was kind of understand what are effective practices we can pass on? And so that's the military is the one that started this and they started doing them specifically, literally an action is a a combat action. After action review, like, hey, we had a plan. Did did it actually work out? And if not, why not? So that's where it comes from. I see.
0: So maybe just to start then, is that what would be the major purposes of trying to do an after action review? Like what are you trying to, when you sit there and plan the after action review... What are you? What What are you hoping to achieve? What's the main purpose
1: of an action after there, action review? Yeah, there are structural issues, things you want to do. There are um, cultural things you want to influence, and then there are human things you want to influence. Those Those are the big three sort of categories, and and the way it works is is historically, and I'll break it down the most simple way, which is you get a group of people in a room that just had an event. And you say, hey, what was the plan? And you have the whole team agree, yep, this was the plan. This is what we were going to try to do. And then you have the team all agree, yep, that was our plan. And then stage two, what actually happened? Now, this is really important because um, interview uh, reliability, interviewee reliability is quite low because we all remember events differently. And this is why getting everybody to talk and say, this is what happened to me. And even though I was standing next to you, We're looking at the same way. This is what happened to me, right? And that's why you have to actually do it that way. You're like, well, this is what I saw. This is what I think you did. I didn't do that. Well, this is what I saw. No, you didn't. That's not what I did. And you have to have those conversations. And then the last phase is once everybody gets out and and their voice is heard. Remember what you're doing here is you're making sure that every voice is heard and everybody's story is heard, right? That matters because you're, you're, perspective on the events, your, your view of the events, your memory of the events, all that needs to be put out loud. Once we do that, the last stage is what's the delta? What's the change between what we planned and what actually happened and why? What's the stuff we can control and what's the stuff we can't control? right? Risks and uncertainty. What's the stuff that we could have anticipated? And what's the stuff we just needed the capacity to to resolve once it showed up because we can't plan for zombie apocalypse, right? So like some stuff's going to come. So how do we build capacity to do that? I see. And structurally, that's really important because you might have protocols, rules, policies in place that you realize, hey, we probably need to put some guard guardrails here. You can't spend $50,000 in a moment of crisis, right? Like that's probably not good for the company. Um, and it wasn't a good use of money, for example. Or or maybe the opposite. Maybe, hey man, the team needs the agility to spend in times of crisis. So yep, you get $100,000, we're going to make you defend it, but you'll have access to capital if you suddenly have to pivot fast. So it depends, right? Uh um, ba-
0: and 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 like how many people would you say should be in like you go like is this 8 to 12 is is 8 to 12 the right number like a typical after action review how many people would be in there would it be just the team members and that's it cuz i can't imagine say put it a team of 40 you know what i mean like i'm guessing that's probably too big but a team of 2 is probably too small is there a sweet spot for the number of people and and because you're trying to achieve a certain meeting dynamic as well, right, in terms of inclusion yep, and, yep, and confidence, yep. you, you know, comfort level sharing opinions. Is there a sweet spot for the team numbers or the, team, it, the, 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 team, the number it, of people in the meeting?
1: It depends why you're doing it. So if it's a structural reason, like, for example, think about um, a, ha- a house burns down. Well, you've got the firefighters, but you've also got the dispatchers, and they actually played a role. So if you're looking for a structural change, meaning like there is a poor thing in communication, then you absolutely need to include the dispatcher because otherwise the change won't happen. So So. there's a structural reason to include everybody, but that's more of an informational exchange. That's more of uh, that sort of thing. If you're looking for a cultural change, man, the team has gone sideways. There's infighting, there's poor behavior, there's, you know, uh, there's laziness, whatever, set it, complacency and overconfidence. Then you want to do that four to 12 dynamic and close doors. And that's where you're going to have some hard conversations. Folks, tell me what happened. Tell me why. Um, you know, Preston, why were you just sitting there? Why weren't you engaged? Well, I think it's stupid. All right, we're going to need to meet afterwards and talk about that because that's actually impacting the team, right? So it just depends. And then the last one is, you know, we've talked about structure and culture. What's our culture? What do we value? What do we always do? What do we never do? That sort of thing. And and what happened this time? Why did that happen? That should never happen. And then there's the human side. Preston, you've made the same mistake three times, right? There's three evolutions, same mistake. You and I have to have to take a walk because we've tried everything right and it doesn't seem to be working and i need to know why from you because if it's not fixable we got to find a different role for you and unfortunately that's part of it part of it is understanding in high consequence environments that it may be that some team members don't belong there and not because they're not good humans but because that's not where their skill set lies and
0: is there a sweet spot for how long after the event do you have an actual? Because, because again, we the the Navy Seal was telling us in some cases they're doing it in the helicopter ride, yeah, back from the back 100%. from the actual event. Now that to me, it, it, just thinking out loud, at some point the emotions are going to run high and run hot, and you'd almost want to do it at a point where the emotions have died down a little bit. And people, but maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's maybe maybe my view is the wrong is 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 the wrong perspective. I'm just wondering from your perspective. Is it when is the best time to do an after action review in terms of how far, how how recent or how quickly after the event would you have it?
1: So th- this is actually uh, there's not a set view. There's, this is actually a controversial topic. There's a lot of people that have different opinions. But I will tell you Preston's view on this, um, and, you, and just know that there's going to be some people that are vehemently throwing things against the walls. <laughs> I'm talking, right? So one of thing I would say is that. I'm not afraid of emotions run high. I would rather, if a team has a line of duty death or a catastrophic incident, I would rather get everybody in the room and have the emotions come out inside the team. I'd rather have that than them going home to their families or whatever else. I want to get all the tears, rage, whatever it is, I want to get that out so people aren't. Second thing is is that the thing that kills people, literally, is the statement, I don't understand. I don't understand why I did that, why they did that, why that happened. You know what I mean? I don't understand. So an after action review is also a chance, like I said, to make meaning of an event, to help people close the loop on, I don't understand, like, I don't agree is different than I don't understand. I cannot agree, but understand. And that helps me process things in terms of time. I'm kind of, I'm one of these people that, and I'm going to, there are exceptions. There's a really important exceptions, but it just for an average run of the mill, I'm not going longer than 45 minutes, maybe an hour. because that's it and and why that is i need people to be concise i don't want any soapbox stuff i don't want anybody having a long speech about you know whatever i don't need any of that we can do that on social time um and by the way we that meaning making will continue into the team room and the pub right it doesn't end but this is mostly about what's the stuff we need to pay attention to right now right and so, forty-five minutes out. Now, where's the exception to that? The exception to that is like you just said, where emotions are high. There's been a line of due to death. There's been a, a failure of the team. Then that can take man. That can take hours if it needs to, um, because every voice needs to be heard. We got to check in with everybody. We got to we got to find out if if you know there's going to be investigations. All these things. So there's so many. There's so many exceptions to my rule. So, but just normal. Yeah.
0: Do you worry? Do, do when when emotions are hot? People may say things they don't mean. Oh yeah. You know, and and I'm just wondering and certain bells you cannot unring. You yeah. know what I mean? Like if you say something nasty about somebody else in the heat of the moment, that might be something that you cannot take back ever. You know yeah. what I mean? And and again, the emotional intelligence, the self-awareness of those people in the meeting must be really high where they must be able to put 99% of what's said behind them the next day you know what I mean and yep. just like the cornerback in football who gets burned on a touchdown the next play is the next play he's forgotten about it That's you right. know what I mean if if right. only for him to for for that person to be successful they have to have a very short memory but I'm just but there's certain things that if you were to say them you can't unsay them and I'm just wondering is that an element or or are those folks in that meeting you can say anything you want for the most part and and it will be left at the door you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, so, um, okay, so I realize the audience I'm talking to here. So this is a really important distinction. The people I'm talking to belong to, and I'm using a French an- French anthropological term, not an indigenous term, they belong to a tribe. They belong to a, a, an extended family. And okay. so you have to think more like a family fight than a corporate fight. Got so it. family fight, you can call your brother and sister anything you want. It's understood you were angry and upset, right? And, and everybody goes on and has a beer. In a corporate environment where you don't have that level of kinship, you're absolutely right. You have to be really thoughtful and let people sort of do that. But you can also help people develop the language to say, I felt that when that happened, I felt like I was let down. And that's an okay thing to say because that's how they felt, yeah. right? And and that's all legitimate. Um, the other one thing that's really important that may not be true in a corporate environment or might um, – there's a real rule around sleep deprivation. If my team hasn't slept in in a 18-hour sleep cycle, I'm probably going to wait until they wake up. Yeah. And there's there's some rules, there's a lot of rules around this. Uh, if there's a line of duty death, I may not because they won't sleep, right? So if, if the thing happened which prevents them from sleeping because they're going to toss and turn, that's actually worse. So then we will do probably a hot wash and I'll just be like, "Hey, rage right now, like get it all out." And let's bed down and then we'll we'll get we'll get together just know we, we this is going to be dealt with right but let's focus on you getting some sleep got it and 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 what are some of the principles if you were to put
0: up a rule listing right to oh, say yeah. look we're walking into a after action review here are the five or six rules that are going to be that everybody's going to follow in those after action reviews you know like i know like like everybody has the same status whether you've yeah. got the ceo or the yep. first year co-op student who's in yep. there, right? They in that meeting, they are equals, right? Yeah. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, what is that short list of rules that you should put in place in order to make sure you have an effective after-action review?
1: Yep. Uh, for me, it's every voice is heard. Uh, if you're in the room, you're talking, and and I don't care if you're yelling at me, but you're talking. Um, to so one, you're asking
0: everybody to contribute an opinion. No, everyone, nobody, no if you're in there, you're given a perspective, in, no yeah, matter what.
1: It doesn't matter. You have to speak, and 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 we'll wait it out. It'll get uncomfortable, and okay. and if and if you need to yell, you need to yell. But but everyone's going to speak. Um, we start with the youngest first because if we don't, they won't talk. Really? And so okay. yeah, yeah. So we start with the youngest because they're going to say probably the most simple things, but there's also a great window into their perspective so what they're focusing on what they're worried about it's really good for us leaders to know hey this is what Johnny and Susie are obsessing about right now and it's not the things we'd think about but they're like yeah you guys are really sorry i was slow because my shoe was was not working and man i just feel terrible and no one cares but they do but we need to know that so we can fix it afterwards right yeah. like there's little things we need to clean up afterwards because people carry their own stuff in yeah. so uh start with the youngest every voice is heard every voice is true meaning if you say something scott it's true for you you're not saying it right and yep. even if you're saying something like president's a jerk well your anger's true right like in other words you're not saying it for just whatever there's yep. a reason underneath and so we're yep. going to we're going to talk about that and then if you bring it up, we're going to talk about it. You don't get to say, I don't, oh, never mind, never mind. Like, no, sorry, passive aggressive will get just destroyed, right? That your life will suck for a while. And so um, everything's going to get talked about, but it's going to get talked about in a very data-rich environment, meaning I'm not going to assume intent. I'm just going to listen to data transfer. You're, you're communicating data. I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to try to process it. Now, it may be, Scott, that you say something like, I'm really mad at Preston because he ran away with that thing. That's an opportunity for me to say, Scott, I was repositioning based on the radio call I got. You weren't on that call. Oh, oh. But what it points at, Scott, is it points out that you thought that because of a previous event. So you'd assume Preston would run away. We have to have that conversation. Right. So it's that kind of a thing. It's like, no, no, that we can't, we have to shine a light on everything because it's the greatest antiseptic. Right. So light, light is the best cure.
0: And are there key changes you need? Like when you go and speak at the Wharton school, Yeah, the best business school in the world. Yeah. Um, is there changes you have to suggest to them compared to how it's run oh. in, a, in, a, in a mission critical? Like, what are some of those changes to say, look, this is how we do it in mission critical team. And we're talking about, like you mentioned, one, it's a fam- effectively kind of like a family environment. Yeah. It's a different in a corporate environment. I'm just wondering, is there other differences between the, between the two in order to kind of get it teed up properly for a, for a proper business
1: environment? <sighs> Absolutely, we're actually when I'm, in, I'm at the Wharton School or or talking to a corporate, we're having a very different conversation, and it's usually around authenticity. It's usually around authenticity of self and authenticity as leader. So, how self-aware are you? how How much time have you spent really having an honest conversation about your internal narrative? Why are you leading? What are you in service to? What's your sustainability? We talk about. When are you making choices about when you're scared a screen and when you stare at a face and why? And just know that in today's world, the more you're investing in a face, the more likely you are to uh, survive an incident um, because of those relationships. And that doesn't mean you like everybody. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, do people know who you are? Do they know who you are authentically? Do they know why you get mad or not mad? People invariably the research is really clear that you can be difficult as long as you're consistent. What matters is consistency. Inconsistency is what burns people out because they don't know what Preston shows up, right? Which Preston showing up today. And so what they want to know is they want to know that I'm not just a cog in a machine. They want to know that you have my interest in heart and they're all grownups. They understand decisions have to be made. They can do that. What they they can't do is be lied to. What they can't do is be dismissed uh, or diminished. uh, Those are the things like those human things, that connection, belonging, purpose, learning. That's what I spent a lot of time talking to corporate folks about. Because, and the reason, Scott, is because if you do that right, crisis is easy. Yeah. Next piece I
0: wanted you to touch on is, and you touched on this earlier about uh, providing feedback to people, right? Yeah is is that these mission-critical teams have no issue at all no. providing negative feedback. Like, yeah. like you say, their heart rate doesn't change at all. I think if you were to walk into the business world yeah. and you were to say, especially if you were looking up at your boss – and saying, uh, you know, I'd like to provide, you know, quote unquote, you know, three hundred and sixty feedback or whatever. Like it, it can be uncomfortable, especially oh if you were gosh, to do yeah. it. If, especially if you were to do it face to face. You know, I mean, yeah. never mind, you know, doing it anonymously or whatever. So I'm just wondering, from your perspective, advice, because, because, because. Um, Getting out the negatives is critical. Like we can all talk about the positive, but I'm guessing really where people are going to get the most out of an after action review is the negatives. What didn't go well, which is going to be, which inherently is going to be a touchy conversation just because it's negative feedback. Right. And it just, your perspective on, on how to properly give feedback to other people in the room. How does, how does that normally work? Because if you were to test the heartbeats of people in the business world, I think it wouldn't be like the mission critical teams. I think people would be uncomfortable saying I'm going to give negative feedback. It's just not just my two cents based on my own, my own experience.
1: Yeah, so um, my former boss, or still boss, I think of him, is uh, Dr. Mike Usain, who wrote a book um, called Leading Up. And I think it's a really good book <clears throat> for how to give feedback, not just to your boss, but to everyone else. And he and uh, our colleague, uh, Jeff Klein, at the McNulty Leadership Program at Wharton would talk about the idea that there are there are structural feedback and there are interpersonal feedback and it's important to separate the two. And I'll give you an example. So we're work, so Scott, you're my boss. You just gave me another um, task to do. Now, what I should do is walk into your office and say, Hey Scott, hey, I, I realize um, this thing has just come up and it needs to get done. I can effectively do 10 things. You've just added 11. So which one do you want me to deprioritize? Help me understand that. And if you like, well, you gotta do them all. And I just say, let me repeat. I can do 10 well, like I'm one guy, right? And and I'm just letting you know right now, I know from my work that I will work very hard. You know that about me. I can't do 11. I, I know that about myself. I can do 10 and, and, uh, and I can do eight better, right? Yeah. So I just need you to help me rack and stack what's, this is the priority right now. We're going to do that. But that means I'm not doing this other thing right now. Are you cool with that or not? And that's a structural thing. That's not interpersonal because he didn't suddenly decide that or she, you didn't, it's probably because something came up. That's a structural problem. I need your guidance as a leader. You can make it interpersonal. It's not. It's a capacity problem, right? So that's just a structural conversation. Interpersonal conversation is, Hey, Scott, um, when you come to my office, um, or my cubicle, you're, you're coming within about, uh, four inches of me. Um, and just so you know, I grew up, I'm an only child. And just so you know, that when I'm talking to you, I I I don't think you mean anything by it, but you should know that's all I can think about because of where I was raised and everything else. I don't think your intention is bad, but if, is it possible that so I can focus on what you're saying, you just give me a little space now that's uncomfortable. That's interpersonal. But, but what I'm getting at is we're not assuming intent, right? I'm not assuming that you're being creepy. I'm assuming that you like to be close to people. Yeah. Right. And you're acting in good intent. You just don't know, and you won't know until I talk to you. Is that uncomfortable? Is that a huge risk? Absolutely. However, what I find is that 99% of the time, if I do that with you, Scott, if I let you know what my needs are, you trust me more. Yep. In other words, because now Scott knows, Preston will let you know. Because we never know. We don't know how we're received. But if you're, if I'm brave enough to say, here's what I need. 99% of the time, Scott will be like, oh my God, thank you. I would never want to actually do that to you. I really appreciate that. And now I feel more confident that if I say something wrong to Preston, Preston will let me know in a, yep. in a nice way. And now all of a sudden, man, I'm, I'm counting on Preston for some things.
0: And what about it at After Action Review, where you're in a group of eight to 12, you're the CEO, you're the leader, and you've got to. A- lay down some negative feedback to some of the folks in that room who are more junior to you um, because you're not, because some of these things went awry, you know, and and everybody knows it that we're not, you know, but things have to change, but you know, as the CEO or as a leader in that room that you've got to be careful just in terms of how you, you know, how you communicate things because you know, it's going to form impressions. It's going to, you know, and I'm just wondering as, as, as a leader, you're sitting in that room of eight to 12, you know, you've got to lay down some negative feedback, tips on how to do that. How would you go about, how would you go about delivering that effectively (laughs) where people are gonna do and and make change because that's the ultimate goal, right? Is to get better.
1: Yeah. So one is honor the room, right? As Mike, you would say, and just honor the fact that everybody's there. Two, um, a certain amount of vulnerability, did you play a role in that as a CEO? Because if you did, you better own that because everyone in the room knows that. And if you if you avoid that, then you're losing credibility, right? Because now you're just blaming your underlings and that's an abuse of power. Yep. And then two, really um, what I would say is the best people I've seen do this lead with inquiry. So I say, hey Scott, um, this scenario evolved. My understanding—correct me if I'm wrong—you did the following four steps. Walk me through what you're thinking was there, right? Okay. Here's the thing. Here's what maybe you didn't—maybe you didn't understand, or maybe you—maybe I failed to inform you, or maybe you just didn't see it. But here's some principles that I want you using in the future when you encounter a similar situation. Because of boom, boom, boom. I see. And what you're doing is you're leading with inquiry. So that gives Scott a chance to say, "Oh yeah, man, I was I was overstressed. I didn't get a lot of sleep and I just failed to CX. I didn't see the email. I didn't I forgot to add somebody to the email. I for, I blew it." Okay, what are we doing to fix that in the future? Well, I'll tell you this is going to sting, so I probably won't forget. And that's probably a good enough answer, right, for yep. people that are motivated. There are other ones where the worst ones, I'm afraid, are the ones I mentioned before. Scott, this is the third time you dropped the ball on this. I need to understand. We've we've had this conversation. I've asked you. You've let me know. I believed you. We're not seeing improvement, and I've got a business to run. I've got people I'm responsible to help me understand what we're going to do. That conversation is probably had in private. Yeah, that's probably not, ha- yeah, that's not happening in a group. What's happening in a group is, right, and and I'll be honest with you, the reason we're having the first one in a group, so let me say this again, Hey, Scott, um, walk me through what happened here. So it gives you a chance to tell us because it probably impact two or three of your colleagues that are probably angry at you. Yep. And so this is a chance for you to kind of fix that or make it worse, right? It's a chance for you to be like, hey, everybody, I know I, I should have been on this. I normally, if you know, M, today was not my day. And everybody can understand that, actually. Everybody's like, no worries, mate. Because then they can say, man, what, what was I doing to back you up, right? Like, you're out there hanging on there, thing. So there's there's opportunities for cultural growth. There is what I'm saying.
0: No, that's great. That's great advice. That's I think I think that because the reality is what you're describing happens all the time. And, right. And and it's it can be handled in a good way and it can yeah. be handled in a bad way. And um, the message is the same, right? Yeah. Like it's you know that there's a message that has to be a behavioral change that has to happen. Yeah. But you can deliver it in a good way, in an effective way, and you can deliver. I remember you were talking. You shared this one story where I think it was one of your first your your first uh, um consulting assignments where you were up on it you were watching them yeah. uh, watching the the police or whoever it was go through an exercise and the guy was just the the instructor was just swearing swearing yeah. swearing at the team and nothing was happening and it that's was right. probably not the best way to go at it right so Yeah
1: and and that's the thing is that you, you got it as a leader say what what impact outcome do I want? What impact am I trying to have? And here's the weird thing, and this is a longer conversation. It's very controversial. There is actually time for an emotional outburst. There are times sometimes where yeah. a team is stuck in a, in a rut or they're not getting it, where it's actually the role of the CEO to kind of light everybody up. Like, yeah. w- w- you know what I mean? And that's, yep, yep. there's times that that's actually appropriate. Um, There have been times in my career where I needed that. I needed somebody to go, you're not, your head's not in the game. You're not paying attention. We're talking about people's careers right now. You have got to stop messing around.
0: Well, again, Preston, thank you very much. The the, the way I'm going to wrap up here is I'm just going to pass it over to you to say, you know, I would encourage everybody to check out Preston's website, the Mission Critical Team Institute. Check out his podcast. And Preston, maybe just give us two cents. What's on your to-do list? What are What's the hot topics these days? You know, is the I can imagine part of it maybe is you know w- working in a virtual environment, perhaps. But what? You know, if you were to if, if you were to um, you know lay out the the one two three things major problems that you're trying to work on with these teams, what's on what's on your list these days?
1: So unfortunately, the problems are big now, right? And so, um, for example, um, NASA will be out there next month is in the process of moving from building rockets to managing private space industry, and that comes with all sorts of organizational change. We've got wildland fires in Canada and the U.S. that are yeah. using 1940 solution and We've got to to start figuring out how to do that because the currency we're using is young people's lives, and we've got to do better. And so learning how to get after that and solve that. And so we're seeing generational change happening right now around the world. We're seeing big systems change, and that means cultures need to change. And so training and education needs to change. And so... I'm in these amazing conversations that are somewhat historic about what is wildlife fire looks like 10 years from now, because we, we can't keep doing what we're doing. What what do we mean? But what is a nurse? What is a police officer? These are fundamental questions, which all of us need to start really asking ourselves. Well, what do we mean? Like, what yeah. do we, and so these are the things that that I worry about and I'm thinking about and I'm excited about because I think I, I will leave you with this. I, I'm an optimist simply because I'm constantly exposed to the next generation of passionate, smart, talented kids. And they want to help. And and I'm endlessly um, affirmed by that. And so I would say that we have big challenges, but we always have. But we have no lack of really talented young people. And I would just request that everybody who's listening to remind you, your job isn't just to manage stuff. It's also to develop young people. And so spend a little time every week finding somebody in your organization that's a little junior and just check in with them and say, hey, what are you working on? What can I help you think about? And it could be anything like, building your resume, how to have that first meeting with your boss, like it can be anything, it all matters. So yeah. I, that's what I would say. And and
0: are you are you believe that technology can really help us get there? Like that's the other thing that's really changed is technology yeah. for better or for worse, yeah. right? Like you talked earlier about number yeah. of emails and and getting you, you know, it's almost data overload, right? People yeah. on their phones all the time technology all those things you described i'm sure technology can be a big help but i'm sure there's also a downside to that too right and i would bet you a lot of times in your cases the technology fails right like like the technology fails the lights go out or you know whatever happens there has to be a backup plan right what's your take on technology is it a help or hindrance
1: so real quick scott um when they handed me my first computer, they said, Preston, this is gonna make everything super simple, made it more complicated. Yeah. When the internet came, they said, Preston, this is gonna make, we're gonna see your mind, everything, it'll make things simpler, made things more complicated. They handed me a first iPhone, Preston, super efficient, make things much more easier. All that happened is I got more data and information. AI will do the same thing. We're working with a woman named Ann Gibbons at Matry Designs, you should check her out, it's amazing. We're on the sort of next level of data visualization. If we cannot figure that out, we've got real problems. So my answer to you is, do I think that AI is gonna be super a game changer yes it will will it actually reduce our workload probably not history suggests it's going to add to it so i would just say be careful what you wish for i've never met a software yet that made my life easier um right so um yeah it's just always there's pros and cons
0: and and especially in the mcti environment the human element is critical right like it's
1: so important right so So, uh... scott can i just comment on that because it comes up a lot so here's what i would say Imagine you're a CEO or a president or a prime minister, and suddenly it's a a bet the company, bet the country move, like something's just blown up where you have to make a decision. Now, you have access to AI, you have access to supercomputers, but here's what I promise you. If you're the CEO, what you're going to do is you're going to pick up the phone, and you're going to call somebody on the ground who's there that you trust, and you're going to say, what are you looking at? Tell me what your gut's saying right now. I gotta pivot left or right. I think what I know what I'm gonna do, but I just need to check with you human that I trust. Is there anything you're seeing I should be aware of? And that won't ever go away. We're never gonna, AI will never replace humans in the decision-making process. Information gathering, information synthesizing, absolutely. But not, not when it comes to your daughter's health, right? AI isn't gonna solve that for you.
0: Those 300 seconds. It, there's the, the amount that AI can play in those 300 seconds where you have to make a decision. Yeah. It's going to be limited, right? Like it, it's just, it, be limited. It, 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 be. It, it is, it's going to help you prepare you for the 300 seconds, give yes. you all the data you need yes. to yes. get you ready to roll in that yes. 300 seconds. But that 300 seconds, man, that human element is, is That's really right. what it boils down to. Yeah. right? So
1: it, it'll help the firefighter get to the person trapped, but it's still a firefighter that needs to get the person. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, Preston, thank you very much for joining us today. It's our pleasure, thank and you, sir. Um, and thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Appreciate it.